1: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash achieve today.
0: The West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. on Scars in Time. Bobby takes Ash and Su Yin into the guts of Gun Cotton's big house, revealing his grandfather to be the notorious Mr. Thompson, who so terrorized Ash in that other lifetime. In the man's collection, they find the recreation of the Raft of the Medusa, which Ash has been hunting for all this time. She's swept away into the mind of a medium living in the French countryside, where she's given an audience with the painter himself, Théodore Jericho. He reveals his own connection with the poisoned muse and her motives. Ash returns to her garret and reads the final words of that other her, the writer, a woman who ostensibly created all this chaos with her simple wish to not be living the life she chose for herself. As Ash coalesces into a single, coherent self from many variations, she falls through the garret's trapdoor and into the beginning of the end of her life. Without further ado, Scars in Time, Chapter 19 The Auction Uh, hey, everybody. This is, uh... um... Boomer Gordon from Gordon and Greek Electrical and Rehabilitation Services. That's not the name of your company, Boomer. Whatever. Just let me record this thing.
1: Hello, and welcome to another wonderful episode of the West Side Fairy Tales, sponsored by Gordon and Greek. Get to the point, Boomer.
0: We've got to do like ten of these today. You get to the point, Sean. Lord. Boomer, Boomer. Sorry, Bobby. I'm here to remind
1: you that the West Side Fairy Tales is provided free of cost to the people of the world and we need your help to spread the word. Follow the West Side Fairy Tales on Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit and make sure to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, um, share us with your friends and family so the West Side Fairy Tales can continue to grow. Alright, uh, is that good?
0: Yeah. What the hell is a West Side fairy tale? Don't worry about it too much, Boomer. You'll give yourself nosebleeds. I didn't lose consciousness hitting my head on the ladder as I fell. The impact probably should have killed me, but it didn't. I suppose my old egg was already as scrambled as it might ever be, but all that said, I was knocked into something of a stupor. I saw my own hand overlapping itself as I placed it against the wall for balance. I could feel my body trying to go in different directions, or rather trying to go in the same direction, but all in different ways. The feeling was like being one of a dozen flags all nailed to the same old piece of wood in a rainstorm. I gained control a few seconds later and moved my hands to my aching skull, which every one of these wind-blown scraps could agree on as a good move. Just a few moments of that head-holding was enough to drag the disparate parts of myself back together. By the time I descended to the second floor... I no longer felt cross-eyed, though I could hear an alarming amount of noise coming from the guts of my home. I had to stand at the railing over the central hall for a long time, looking down at the madness beneath me, before I finally decided against just going back upstairs to lay quietly at the base of the ladder and wait to die. There were dozens of me milling through the central hall, having drinks and talking amongst each other. Nearly fifty or so versions of Ash Littletree or Ashley Colin, God forbid, were meandering around down there. Less than a quarter of them bore the same white fishnet on the side of their head as I did, however, and some looked far worse. I turned back to the staircase leading up to the third floor one last time and nearly had a heart attack. He was there his goddamn brown suit and grinning at me through his sideways Picasso face. The Umbrella Man. I crossed my arms at him. Of course, I said. And why are you here, you fat bastard? His mouth, placed where his right eye should be, puckered into an offended sort of O shape. He gestured with a gloved hand toward the insane little soiree below, the hard... Thick bodied fish hooks at the end of his fingers glittering as though he'd just polished them. This was the first time I'd ever been close enough to see the little bits of stitching around the base of the hooks. Somebody had made those gloves to order. I sighed and walked downstairs. Few of the other me's passed a glance my way, though. The ones that did look all tended to be the brown hairs, the ones that had surrendered. They gave me shitty, sideways glances that I hated seeing on my own face. I ignored them and moved toward the front door, wanting to see what was going on inside. The door was locked, I found, and wedged so tightly in its frame anyway it seemed no more than a wall with the mistake of a door set into it. Thick, white mist rolled against the windows, casting a thin light through the glass, Past the mist were the few familiar shapes of my porch and then blackness. Utter and complete. Hey there, she said behind me. The poisoned muse. She was an adult now and much prettier than she'd ever been before. Though her face had a sort of formless quality to it. The beauty you'd find in a dream. Less the presence of beauty than the idea of it. "'She touched my face and I slapped her wrist. "'What the fuck is going on here?' I asked her. "'You're an artist,' she said. "'Haven't you ever been to an auction?' "'She gestured with her hand and I saw through the crowd "'that a small stage of sorts had been erected before the fireplace. "'A lectern and an easel with thin supports were set up atop it, "'and on that stickish frame sat a familiar picture.' chaotic, formless sketch Jericho had made of me. This wasn't simple chalk, but rather a large and fully painted piece. I could see myself in it, though the more I looked, the more I saw these other me's just as plainly. The head was tilted in a manner that obscured the side where the scars had turned my scalp white, which made me more nervous than I might have expected. The mouth, the skin, And even the quality of my hair seemed to change as I watched But the eyes remained ever the same They were sad, hurt, and tired I sighed and shook my head What is all this? I asked the muse She raised her shoulders You can't all be real, can you? She asked with a smile Then she wriggled her fingers at someone behind me and flitted off into the crowd of brown hairs. They made a lot of happy noise when she fell in amongst their ranks, though none of them seemed especially glad to see her. Her golden presence faded in amongst them, but not completely. I could still see specks of gold here and there in the group. It took me a second to realize they were all holding or wearing or otherwise in possession of things that glowed just like the muse did. Purses jewelry. One particularly fat version of me was all but crushing a bottle of golden pills in her right hand. The more I looked around, the more golden items I saw. I looked myself over, even going so far as to try turning out the pockets of my jeans, but I couldn't find anything. The only gold I had on me was my wedding band. I was fiddling with that when one of the white hairs came up to me. She stood a short distance away. "'Nodding silently until I looked at her. "'Then she smiled and pretended like we'd been talking all along. "'Hey, man,' she said. "'What you got on you?' "'Got on me,' I asked. "'Yeah, you gotta put something in for the auction, you know?' "'She continued. "'When I still wasn't catching on, "'she rolled her eyes and pulled a flat tin box from her pocket. "'Her pants were grimy and torn at the knees.' She popped it open, and the dull gold that pulsed out was no brighter than a dying light bulb. Inside the tin lay a baggie of powder and a plastic syringe with a capped-off needle. I frowned at what she was showing me, and she sheepishly pushed it back into her pocket. Don't act like you never thought about it, she said under her breath. Fucking oxies, man. After what went down with Mike, you know, it was easier than, than dealing with it. I asked. She frowned at me and looked at her feet. I touched her shoulder. It's okay. I get it. She squeezed my fingers and pulled my hand off her shoulder, taking a step back. You... You gotta have something when he comes around. She said. If it isn't enough for the buy-in, whatever the fuck that means, you go out the door. We both looked at the mist pooling against the front windows. She took a big breath as a shadow floated across the floor over us. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. She stepped back into the crowd of white hairs. Some of them were throwing me glances, too. They're not the shitty, side-eyed looks of the brown hairs. They seemed curious, if anything. I turned to see him, the Umbrella Man, descending on the crowd of brown hairs. They tittered nervously ignoring him until his feet were all but brushing the crowns of their heads. Then they started screaming and clearing an area for him to land. He remained in the air, however, floating a couple feet off the ground and going from person to person. He stopped in front of the overweight me, holding the pills and tilted his head over her. The other brown hairs were pushed as far away as they could get without coming closer to us white hairs. The umbrella man's tall hat cast a shadow over her face that complemented the light penumbra from his parasol. Shaking, she held up the golden pill bottle. He reached down as though to take it from her hands, and I saw a bit of relief cross her face. But his hand slipped past the bottle and curled gently around her wrist. Her skin went bone white and she tried to pull away, just a bit at first. And then she was all but trying to rip her arm off wholesale. The umbrella man's hooks were too deep. Blood ran down her flabby arm, pulling in her armpit and soaking the floral dress she was wearing. All the brown hairs seemed to be wearing dresses of some kind, while all of us white hairs were decked out in shirts and boots and generally grimy jeans. We all looked like shit, basically. This flabby version of me started screaming as the Umbrella Man floated toward the door, which creaked open without anybody touching it. Thick mist rolled into the room, pulling on the floor but not creeping more than a couple feet inside the house. The Umbrella Man turned ninety degrees, twisting the fat me's arm until she spun and fell onto the floor. Our eyes met for a second, me and that thing, and he winked at me with his eyeball mouth. Then he shot out the door like a bullet, causing the mist to pucker and billow through the opening. All that remained a second later was the smear of the fat Ash's blood. I realized she probably called herself Ashley, or worse, Mrs. Colin, leading out the door. We all watched the doorway in silence, wondering what might happen next or if the door would just shut. A lot of us let out a low moan when the Umbrella Man floated back inside. The shadow of him rose up to the ceiling, where he hung like a brown balloon. I felt a gust of wind and turned to see another shape flutter through the door. And then another. And another. They were all Umbrella Men. Dozens of them that looked perfectly identical save for the undiscerning horror of their Picasso faces. They circled and mingled overhead, reminding me of sharks swimming over a school of fish on the nature channel. One by one, they swooped down over the crowd, thinning it steadily. None of the brown hairs seemed to want to go easy, and they appeared to go at a higher rate than us white hairs. They held up jewels and pieces of paper. One even pulled up her shirt to show off a pair of fake golden breasts and a series of brilliant slashes marking the invisible scars of her liposuction surgery. Out they went. One of the creatures floated down to me, his tongue sticking out of a clean, empty eye socket. The rest of his face was on the sides of his head where I mostly couldn't see. I made out a set of lips idly munching on a tuft of his sideburns and that was it. He leaned over me. Eat shit. I told him He laughed and reached his hand down toward me Whatever I held my wrist up to him and he stopped Tilting his head to the side for just a moment before retracting his free hand And sliding past me into the group of white hairs Hey! I called after him Dream or nightmare or reality I just wanted done with all this shit He ignored me, however stopping in front of an ash I looked almost completely identical to. Her arms were crossed, and her eyes were so tired-looking she seemed half about to fall asleep right there on the floor. You kept me waiting for so long, she said to the umbrella man. To my surprise, he straightened and doffed his hat, bowing deeply to her in a way that bent his umbrella-holding arm at a horrific angle behind him. She held her arm up to him much as I did, but he didn't dig those hooks into the flesh of her wrist. He merely let her rest her fingers on his palm, leading her to the door like a date to the dance floor. It wasn't until they passed in front of me that I saw the pair of nasty purple scars running down the length of her forearm. They glowed surprisingly bright, enough to hurt my eyes. When they arrived at the door... He shifted his hand to the small of her back. She wrapped her arms around him and placed her face against his chest, letting him float her gently out the door and into the mist beyond. Jesus fucking Christ, the junkie me said. I turned to see her watching the ceiling and fiddling with the tin box in her hand. You fall asleep under the wrong bridge in Tribeca and then here you are, in hell with yourself. She shook her head and looked at me. How about you? Were you dead or dying or something? I opened my mouth, but said nothing for a long while as I watched the shadows dance across the ceiling. I thought of myself and my life before getting here, to this house and this town. The fire and all the odd coincidences. The tight feeling of the bands of air on my face. The fires that had haunted me ever since that last easy morning when I was seventeen. Had I really been alive all that time? Or had I just been shuffling through my weird existence and dreaming of being somebody for thirty years? Tumbling around until I ended up here in this non-place, watching a hundred versions of myself being sucked out a door by my own teenage embodiment of death. I think I just wasn't living, I said. I thought I was living the junkie me replied you know like doing my own thing in a way that was all mine or something like that she coughed and clasped her arms tight around herself I wrote books you know did you ever get around to writing yeah I said got published too skull crickets how about you published oh yeah for sure she said Fucking Oprah and, um... Her eyes were rapidly searching the ceiling. Fucking New York Times bestseller list? I... What were yours about? My first was called The Umbrella Man. Fiction. I said it was fiction at least, and then I wrote a bunch of others. They were just okay. Oh, oh, fuck. Her entire body was shaking. Are you okay? I asked. She shook her head. "'No, no,' she said. "'Oh, fuck!' "'She tossed the tin box onto the ground, "'which crashed like a cymbal and burst open. "'Fucking, uh, fucking Ezra Miller played Mike in the movie. "'I told him he was too pretty and too... "'He's really nice in person, too nice. "'Fuck, Mike was such a piece of shit. "'How'd you do it when you did it?' "'He was in the road and I stepped on his head.' Crunch, crunch, crunch. Fuck me. She crouched down over her heels. I shouldn't be here, she said. I wasn't supposed to use anymore, but fuck, man. The pressure gets real, you know? Fucking editors always fucking asking. I was supposed to meet Ethan in the morning, and here I am back at home. Back in this fucking house. She kicked the broken drug kit. Scattering it into the distracted and squalling crowd of brown hairs. They were getting picked off rapidly now, though there were still plenty more of them than us. Fuck this, she said, stopping to grab my shoulder just once before heading toward the door. Good luck, if you're actually going to try sticking this thing out. I'm fucking done with all this shit. She squeezed my shoulder and then she was gone one of the umbrella men doddering down out of the air to follow her through the door. I glanced up at the ceiling and then at the other white hairs lounging around and waiting for their turns by the living room. Some of them had even picked books off the bookshelves and were paging through them. The brown hairs weren't so reserved. They darted and fussed back and forth through the kitchen and dining room, some clearly just trying to hide while others bent themselves to familiar tasks as a sort of distraction, before the end came. Only one of them caught my eye, I knew it was her the second I saw her. It was the one who'd gotten me stuck in her shitty life with Mike, the only one of these replicants I really considered to be the other me, Ashley Colon, the mother. Her eyes darted around when she saw me glaring at her and she ducked into the dining room. I gave one last look at the wandering clouds of brown-suited death roving over us and decided to follow her. Some of the other brown hairs glared when I approached, but they were all paper tigers, nothing to be bothered about. The only thing that put a hitch in my step was one of the umbrella men slipping out of the dining room with a screaming brown hair in his grip. She dragged along the floor like a wet mop leaving tacky streaks of blood from where his hooks had rent the flesh of her chest and shoulder. She slapped at my leg as she passed, but her fingers were flaccid and insubstantial. Nothing like that could ever press down a typewriter key, I thought to myself. I found Ashley just around the corner, tucked up against a cabinet of unfamiliar silverware. I realized she had something behind her, and when I moved to get a better look, She shifted, and I heard something bump against the wall. The thing uttered a muffled grunt of protest, which made Ashley puff out her chest protectively. What's that? I asked, pointing. She said nothing for a long while. This is all your fault, you know, was what she finally settled on saying. I rolled my eyes. That's... you know... I don't care if it is, I said. I've been getting sucked through a fucking spiritual garbage disposal against my own will for months now, it feels like. But if you say so, then sure. This horse shit is all my fault. No, she said. Not this. What's about to happen. If you'd just stayed with Mike, she sniffed. I know what you did to him. "'What, your husband?' I asked. "'That's so fucking disgusting, by the way.' "'I hated him! You fucking psycho!' she said. "'I just don't... I don't kill people the way you do. Just like that!' The thing behind her pushed forward and knocked her away from the wall. "'Mom!' the girl said, stepping out and rubbing her eyes. A gold sheen brighter than anything I'd seen in the central hall covered her skin. It was Emily, Ashley's daughter. The daughter I would have had if I'd stayed with Mike. I found myself reaching out for her without thinking. Ashley tried to drag the girl back with one hand but failed, falling back against the wall with a metallic thunk. I gave her a look for just a second and then my breath caught in my chest. The girl had wrapped her arms around me. I looked down at the piles of messy brown bedhead resting against my hip. I have extra moms in this dream, the girl said. Will you be a good mommy and let me go back to bed? I don't want to hide in the dining room anymore. She rubbed her face against my thigh and I felt like my heart was going to break. This girl was my child, my child that I never had. She was real and material and warm here. I felt something like a golden sinking in my heart. For a long time I stood there, almost half remembering things about her life. The torment of birth, and the Madonna moment of first cradling her in my arms. Her irritating little baby teeth shredding my nipples, and then those same teeth laying in a little pile in my keepsake curio on the dresser. You don't have a keepsake, Curio, you fucking dork. I heard a voice, basically my own voice, say in my head. I blinked and came to from the sort of trance I'd fallen into, pushing the girl slowly off my leg. She let go and looked up at me with lidded eyes, giving me a puffy little sleep smile before patting my leg and then laying against me again. I would have tried to pry her away again, carefully though. But one of the coated grotesques swooped into the room from the kitchen. The lights there were bright enough to throw the entirety of his shadow over us, though it came to cover only the girl as he drew closer. She twisted her fingers into the fabric of my old jeans. I let her this time. I'm not an animal. Mom, it's Daddy's friend, she whispered. I don't like him. Can you tell him to leave? What? I asked her. She said nothing, just moaned into my leg and started crying. I suppose this must be one hell of a nightmare. I turned my body to the side to shield the girl from the thing, but he didn't seem interested in us. He turned instead to Ashley, blocking her from my sight with his body. She handed him something. I heard a familiar, light, mechanical ringing. I didn't realize what it was until it was too late. My typewriter? I said, pushing the girl off me and behind me so I could get closer. I ducked around the umbrella man and saw him holding it in his hands, turning it over and over like a pawnbroker. Hey, I said. Ashley gave me a look like a kid that doesn't care their hand has been caught in the cookie jar. She pushed the thing fully into the creature's arms and then fell back against the wall. I tried to shove forward to grab it, but it floated up and away from me. That's mine, I said. The little girl was crying somewhere behind me. Something that was probably Ashley pushed past to grab her. I couldn't tell. My entire attention was focused on the typewriter. And this one was mine. Truly mine. The one from my garret given for debts paid... She'd stolen it from me and given it to this thing, the fucking bitch. The Umbrella Man hovered over top me, deciding to have itself a bit of fun by dangling the typewriter over my head. I could see a leaf of paper tucked in place around the roller and flecked all over with writing, I couldn't read the words. The Umbrella Man dangled the thing just out of my reach. I grabbed the chairs at the table and threw them as hard as I could, but he simply whipped his odd... The material body this way and that to evade them. Then I saw an opportunity and jumped with my left hand outstretched, intent on curling my fingers around the lip of metal that rimmed the bottom of the keys. His other arm shot out like a snake and sunk into the flesh of my wrist. The needles were so deeply buried I could see nothing but his black gloves against my skin. His umbrella was sunk into the meat of his shoulder, and he dangled from the crook like a black bit of trash bag at the end of a fishing line. I punched his mismatched, putty face as hard as I could. I might as well have just punched a lump of cool, wet clay. I even saw the depressions of my knuckles. Give it back! I screamed at him. Despite how bad it hurt the wrist he'd grabbed, I tried to kick and scratch and claw at him. He managed to keep the typewriter out of my reach. I don't know what I'd have done if I'd managed to get my hands on it. "'slap the keys and hope for a miracle, I suppose. "'But that wasn't in the cards. "'To my horror and utter disgust, "'he brought my hand close to the scrambled ruins of his face, "'where an unearthly mouth had begun to form in the pit of his head. It "'Looked now more like the Mr. Cutting I'd known for a brief time "'when this house belonged to the starlings "'than he'd ever looked during my few encounters with him. "'The traces of his melted, cavitated skull surfaced as the pink putty moved aside to form teeth and tongues and lips. Those tongues played over my fingers, picking and prying at them to dig into my fist. I realized a second later that he was trying to get to my ring, though at first I figured he was just going to eat one of my fingers for sport. I managed to keep my fist clenched for a minute, but then I felt the steel hooks in my wrists shifting and scraping against my tendons. Something gave, and my fingers opened. His tongues swept over my skin, feeling like rotten and slime-covered cow parts. Whatever made his mouth wet was viscous and tingled like soda water. I almost puked. If I had, I couldn't tell you whether it would have been from the pain or the foulness of what was happening to my hand. Then he had my ring off and in his mouth, and he dropped me almost instantly. I hit the floor at a bad angle and my ankle rolled painfully. I jumped after him, howling in pain when I stood. He moved too quickly, but I followed all the same, all the way out into the grand hall, where he swept up onto the stage by the great central hearth. A man, if you can call him that, was sitting in a folding chair behind the podium. He was tall and thin. Long, really. His arms were lost in a patterned suit of deep moss green. They were so oddly stretched I couldn't tell where they were jointed, and soon realized that every other time he moved, the things bent in entirely different, sometimes impossible, places. He looked at me and smiled over the expanse of smeared, bloody wood that made up the great hall floor. None of the other me's were left, not the white hairs and not the browns, though that latter group's side of the hall was for sure the more blood-stained. and smears and drops and dollops filled the space floor to fucking ceiling like an edgy Jackson Pollock ripoff. I limped forward and saw that my original assessment wasn't entirely correct. Ashley was still there, standing by one of the last two remaining Umbrella Men. The creature itself was floating with its back to us staring into the kitchen and thinking whatever slow thoughts came to such a thing. I suppose we're all assembled then, the man-thing behind the podium said. His words came in an uneven, uncomfortable cadence, like they were being sifted out of his mouth rather than simply spoken. The umbrella man holding my stolen typewriter and my wedding ring dangled his ill-gotten prizes before the man, who plucked the sheet of paper from the typewriter and then waved his hand. This penultimate umbrella man then flitted out through the front door. I would have given chase if the thing didn't fly like a trash bag caught in a tornado. It all but flickered through the room and out into the fog. The door slammed shut, and the immediate droning silence that followed was quickly broken by a shout. It was she, the muse, her fists clutched under her and a child's sort of excitement on her face. She walked to the door and tried to open it, pounding her fist on the thing and then turning to slide down and curl into the small folds of her dress. Yes! She screamed. She howled that single syllable like an animal, letting the note turn sour and great into a series of hyena laughs. I watched her for a second until she turned that mad grin of hers on me. The black sores on her face were more distinguished now, like fuzz-clotted ink dropped into the radiant honey of her skin. I shook my head and turned away.
1: We are gathered here to arrange for the disbursement of the lone and sole possession of the deceased.
0: "'I'm Miss Ashcorn, dear possible heiresses,' the man said in his hitch-and-skitter voice. I glared at him and hobbled forward. "'That's not my last name,' I said to him. He smiled. The teeth in his head were all in the wrong places, molars in front and sizes in the back or sticking flat out the sides of his gums.' In a flash, I recognized him, though it felt impossible. It was the man the deceased Mr. Morgan had spoken to in that dismal bar. A man I had put in my story. A man I thought I had simply made up. Of course it isn't. He replied. Something in his cadence told me he was happy to be recognized, though he never otherwise acknowledged my realization. You aren't dead. Are you? The statement wasn't a rebuff, but an actual request for clarification. The thought that I might be dead had occurred to me, though, like much of this psychotic nightmare, it was a useless fact. Nothing in the least that could help me fix things if it were, or weren't, true. No, I finally said, and the matter moved on. The deceased had arrived at something of an immense life before her tragic, untimely demise, the man said. I eventually had to stumble to the podium to keep myself upright. My ankle wouldn't hold my weight comfortably anymore, and I wasn't about to just sit down in the slurry of drying blood beneath my feet. The wood was stickier here than a bar floor after last call. Her last thoughts typed out here in the hours before her death are all we have to discern Miss Collins' wishes for her estate post-mortem, he said. His eyes moved independently of one another, I saw, the left and right taking turns sizing Ashley and I up, as well as reading the page. When that wandering eye danced over me, I could tell it was taking some enjoyment from the use of the phrase Mrs. Colon. Mrs. Colin was, <laughs> he chuckled to himself, a writer without readers, childless and close to death from a disease unleashed by her husband's masters after their purchase of this home. He continued, waving his arms around the grand hall. I adjusted my aching ankle and heard a nasty, scratching sound beneath my toes. Looking down, I saw the familiar shape of a razor on the ground under my foot. I thought of that junky version of myself kicking her kit to pieces and scattering it across the floor. I pretended I'd seen nothing and turned my head back to the man. Though she toiled about on the old typewriter she found in the basement after her husband had sealed in the laboratory clinic of Dr. Starling. She produced nothing that survived save a single piece of paper, he said. The man held up the paper for us and then began to read. Ashley glared at me from the other side of the podium. The muse clearly feeling good about herself, was standing almost perfectly between us, smoothing her skirts and smiling at the odd painting on the easel beside the podium. I will let her speak to her wishes in her own words, the man said. Though he read the paper aloud to us, I was surprised to hear a voice very much like my own coming from his throat. There is nothing left now, he read. Nothing such as hope And nobody around to rest a forgiving hand on my shoulder If I shared with them the measure of what happened Nobody, even still To raise a purging hand against me and punish me as perhaps I deserve When I cough What comes out of my lungs is beyond description simply foul at first Now it burns and smokes against whatever it touches I hope that it kills me And I don't become like Mike Locked away down there in his little dungeon with the others. Bobby told me they are eternal now, like him, but still so toxic and mindlessly destructive that being sealed away in the dark forever is the only hope that might remain to the world if the world weren't already just as doomed. The sickness is everywhere, and I can see her in it. That golden shine mixed in amongst the black death in the children's faces. In my own. Her last inspiration has given her the ability to make all the world feel what she wants them to feel. A last, terrific work of art. Disease spread shore to shore. A foulness that will leave only a fraction alive. And those only mindless husks. If I were stronger, I would have killed Mike all those years ago. When he touched me on that bike... I let him infect me with his love, a soft surrender that marked the first of a thousand hard and ugly losses. I would have liked to be a writer, as I have dreamed, clattering away on this keyboard into the wild hours of the night. I would have loved, still, to be a mother. Is there no reason I couldn't have been both? The muse has come to me and shown me all these possibilities even used the typewriter to let me live them. I have existed as so many people and all of them so much more talented, more devoted, more motivated than I am. But what would I have surrendered to become any of them? Who could have taken this life from me? If it is the wolf you feed which rules your heart, what happens if you starve them both? That concludes her last wishes, the man said, holding the paper above his head and then dropping it. An impossible series of currents allowed it to flip and flutter into the mouth of the fireplace. The flames were low, but hungry enough for dry paper. Now, for this selection, which of you is the well-fed wolf who has more... To surrender. I do, Ashley said. I already have. She stepped forward, keeping her daughter slightly behind her. The girl's hands were twisted together around her thigh. I gave up all my dreams for my daughter. For Emily, I, I put up with Mike, all of his horse shit, all of his abuse. If he were just a normal man, it would have been different. But with him, I needed to wait for the right time the right opportunity. What, for me and fucking Yin to kill him? I asked, crossing my arms. You chicken shit bitch. I wanted to go over there and start smacking her around. I would have, if my wounded ankle hadn't kept me grounded in place. Still, she cowered away from me. Yes, Ashley replied. Now he's gone everywhere. We're the only two left. And Mike doesn't exist without us, don't you get that? She seemed nearly in tears. We were the ones who kept him in our lives, in our hearts, in our, our fucking heads, us. He hasn't been alive for me for decades, you fucking coward. I snapped back at her, though my words felt hollow. I had been keeping him alive in my own way. That's why he wasn't just a stranger when I lived with him as Ashley. It felt as real as anything. A pair of shoes that were already broken in when I bought them. Lived in and worn because I let them be lived in and worn. It was odd having this other me thinking of me as a killer. Because I had spent the last thirty years of my life thinking of myself as Mike's victim. Even with him dead and rotted away to nothing. He was still the smirking boy in my bedroom. He was the poison touch that ran deeper than anything this poison muse had dripped into someone's ear. He kept beating me, even when I won. She has nothing left to give, Ashley answered for me, giving me an ugly glare and then turning her head to the man. His fucked up eyes were split between the both of us. Nothing but her sham of a marriage to that condescending lesbian, two codependents barely in love after thirty years, and nothing holding them together but habit. She shook her head. What is that worth in sacrifice? Everything, I said, taking a step toward her without thinking. My ankle gave out immediately and I dropped to my knees. I love Darcy. She's everything to me. We both know that's not true. Ashley said softly. I swallowed, not able to bring my eyes up from the blood-stained floor. All I could think of was Darcy's face, always concerned for me, always tired, always exasperated, always doing the right thing and keeping me on the path, always making sacrifices for poor, brittle, broken ash. I tried to stand, but couldn't. Well then, I suppose that's that If there are no more comments from our other participants The man said It should be said That not every sacrifice present has been offered up tonight I didn't know what he meant by that, but Ashley did I could feel her tensing up even on this side of the room When I looked up at her she was still standing with Emily shoved behind her, both hands around her back and holding the girl close. No, she said. It's not up for discussion. My daughter isn't some sacrifice to be given to these things. She glared at the man and then me. Just die. You piece of shit. You fucking half realized dream. Just leave me and my daughter in peace and go. I didn't respond. Honestly, I didn't even know what to say. The girl was looking at me with doe eyes, having pulled her way out of her mother's grip. The muse was still between us, more purely gold than any of the offerings had been. I would have had her dragged out of here by the scruff of her neck, but I knew intrinsically that she wasn't some pawn to be bartered with. Her value exceeded and outclassed human life in no uncertain terms. Trying to trade her would be like trying to sell a fisherman the moon so he can move the tides. But the girl... She was small and dressed in purple pajamas patterned with stars and crescent moons. She had my eyes, the same dark hazel. And her father's features were thankfully almost entirely non-present. Something in the way I was looking at her made her bite her lip and turn to her mother. I opened my mouth to say something, but my words were cut short. He turned around at that moment, the last of the Umbrella Men. I realized it was him. Mine. My Umbrella Man from all those years ago. The one who'd killed my friends and haunted and hunted me through the fall of my last year in high school. The one who'd put a finger to his lips after I'd shoved Mike down to his death. Before slipping into the earth to disappear forever. Or so I'd thought. Where the other creatures, the ones filling the ceiling of my home, had seemed to me ridiculous and overbearing. This one was nothing short of terrifying. He was not clean and well-kempt. He was not jolly and lightly officious. He was torn and tattered and old, a thing that had been left too long out in the rain. His hooks shone from under a fuzz of rust. His hat was full of holes. The putty of his face had dried and clumped and separated, leaving oily hunks of hairy pink meat to float formless around rotten black chunks of tongue and teeth and eyes and lips. He sunk his fingers into my shoulder and I screamed from the pain of it. These hooks were not surgical sharp like the ones who'd stolen my typewriter but cruelly dull. They punctured and tore and I could even feel pieces of them breaking off inside of me. No, I whispered as he dragged me across the floor of my home. The muse gave me a simpering victorious smile. Ashley didn't look at me at all She was too busy admiring the picture of herself that was forming on the painted canvas. The last work of Theodore Jericho. No, I said, looking around for something to grab onto. Something hard that would let me cling to this place a little longer, to give me time to think. The front door swung open behind me, just meters away now and already leaking that thick fog inside to pool around my feet. No! I screamed. I screamed. And then I heard it, soft, almost inaudible, a click, a tap. The umbrella man stopped moving. The front door creaked on its hinges. My blood patterned over the floor beneath me, leaking fast from both my wounded left arm and the fresh, jagged punctures on my right shoulder. I remembered the razor and looked at my shoe, screaming like an animal when I saw the tight little square edge was still stuck in place on my sole. I'm not done yet, I said, to myself as much as anybody. I mustered the strength I needed to get my foot to my hands and pulled the razor free. The Umbrella Man wasn't moving any closer to the door, but he also wasn't letting me go, so I took matters into my own hands. The sound came again, and I saw the muse's face drop. The strange man's eyes rolled together and then up to the ceiling, his mouth curving, creeping over his cheekbones to curl around his eyes in an awful smile. Only Ashley didn't seem to hear it. Possibly it wasn't a sound she was familiar with. I started cutting, squeezing the little machined-out holes in the center of the ancient, lightly rusted drug razor and digging into my flesh. I didn't bother trying to cut the umbrella man, God only knew what lay beneath the surface of that broken, doughy skin. My senses dulled as I cut and sawed, puking on myself from the pain but never ceasing and digging away at my skin and muscles and tendons. I was screaming, though I couldn't hear it. I couldn't see where I was cutting either, so I just focused on Ashley. She was looking at me now, kneeling and curled around her child as though something was about to fall on them. Perhaps something was about to fall. I could hear it as I fell myself, finally hacking my body free of the Umbrella Man's hooks and crashing to the floor in a bloody heap. But I could hear it, the sound, the incessant fall and clatter and crash. It set about the ceiling overhead knocking dust free to fall so thickly over me and all of us that I could feel it clotting my blood. It came on harder and deeper still, that mechanical rhythm, until I could feel those scissoring keyblades moving inside my bones, moving my bones, forcing me to stand and start walking. The typewriter. My typewriter it was calling to me
1: new fucking ads god damn it fucking everywhere i told you to buy a fucking shirt now look at us no shirts too many ads you hate the fucking ads you hate my fucking voice go join the patreon it's just a dollar one fucking dollar and you get no ads. Sweet fucking deal. Patreon.com slash Westside Tales. You better fucking do it this time. Stay beautiful, kid.
0: up on Scars in Time. Ash clings to life by a thread, hanging literally at the edge of the door to oblivion. But she can hear the typewriter. It is calling to her. I hope you'll join us next time for the thrilling conclusion to Scars in Time, Chapter 20, The End. And until next time, as always... Stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Huey Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2021 WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the witching woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.